Most of us wrestle with some combination of fear, worry, or anxiety. For some of us, it's a daily battle. But the reality is, everyone worries about something. I'm Adam Hamilton, author of the new book and Bible study experience, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. Over a five-week period, we'll explore the most common worries and fears experienced by Americans today. We'll consider the anatomy of fear, the actual physiological processes behind our experience of fear. Then we'll explore proven practices to deal with our fear and to look at the important role faith can play in helping us live unafraid with courage and hope. While you may always have to live with a measure of fear, you don't have to live afraid. Join me together as we will come to understand that courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the act of doing, living, and being, despite our fears, secure in God's love. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, you can text the word WELCOME to that number you see on the screen, 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out, tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. It'll put you on our weekly email list as well. So once a week, you'll get an email about what's happening in The Well. Thank you for being with us this morning. And today is the second week of our new series, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. And it's based on a book of the same title by a pastor named Adam Hamilton. Adam is the pastor of a church in Kansas City called Church of the Resurrection. And every week, the sermon will coincide with our Wednesday online connect group. And they just started this past Wednesday. So there's, there's time to order your book and go to wellchurch.org, get more information about that online connect group. And then you could join that group. And every week, you can discuss what you're reading. The reading for this coming week is part two in, in, in the book. And, and it coincides with the sermon. So if you, if you want to experience community and dive deeper into Unafraid, you definitely want to check out that online Connect group. Today is also a communion service. So after the service, uh, if you'd like to participate in communion, just have a piece of bread with you and uh, something to drink, and we'll take communion together at the end of the service. Now, the topic today is fear of the other. Fear of people we perceive are different from us, whether they really are or not, but it's really about our perception. Fear of the other. And as I think about where our country is right now, our current situation, perhaps this is the main reason that we are where we are. Perhaps this is the main driver of, of politics and the way people are voting right now in the United States. Fear of the other. You remember in the past, uh, the last election, uh, there was so much talk about immigration and building a wall and, and banning Muslims from entering the country. And we've seen a, a rise in, in hate crimes against people who are ethnic minorities. And in, in white supremacist groups, even in the protests this summer after the, the death of George Floyd and, and others, there were white supremacists who came into town from other areas and were inciting violence. The most famous example is the 17-year-old young guy who allegedly shot three people. I mean, it's on video, but we have to say allegedly, killing two of those. And um, perhaps this is the number one issue we face right now in the United States. By 2045, sociologists tell us that, that white people will be a minority in the United States. And so right now we're struggling with who we are as a country. Uh, we're struggling between white supremacy and multiculturalism. 
being a country where everybody can live here and enjoy without there being such a power struggle between races. And of course, there are other ways of having fear of the other. And so today, like most of the, the, uh, the sermons in this series, we're going to hear from the author of the book, Adam Hamilton, uh, as he talks about fear of the other. And then after we watch the sermon, we're going to come back and share communion together. And communion is a powerful symbol for us as we talk about fear of the other. So right now, let's watch Adam Hamilton, Fear of the Other. So uh, how many of you have been on a mission trip to Africa? Some of you have. Thank you so much. My dream is that all of you would have a chance to do this at some point in your life, that it's on your bucket list. And I've been several times. It's a great experience. And, and most of our mission trips are to southern or south central Africa, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi. Those are the primary places. Uh, we've had some in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. When I've gone, one of the things that we try to do is we try to schedule a uh, two-day um, safari at the end of your mission trip because we think this may be the only time you ever go to Africa. And if that's the only time, we want you to get to see some of the wildlife and some of the natural beauty that's there. And so we try to plan that as well. And they're pretty simple safaris. But uh, one of them that I was on, we were the very first time I was there, we were at the Kruger National Park in South Africa. And we stayed in these tents built on top of these platforms. And it was this amazing experience. Uh, the camp that we were at one night was surrounded by a really tall fence. So the only animals that could get into our camp were the monkeys. And they were getting in on a regular basis. But other than that, uh, you know, it was we were parked right next to her. We were camped right next to a watering hole. And it was awesome to wake up in the morning and to see all of these animals just naturally gathering at this watering hole. And they were totally oblivious to us. And, and there were zebras and giraffes and elephants and, and uh, you know, all kinds of amazing animals. It was just, it was just awesome. And uh, while I was standing there, I noticed there was uh, one type of animal. There was a whole lot of them actually there. And the guide said, now that's an impala. Now, I, you know, I knew impalas were animals, but mostly I know them as Chevys. And so, uh, anyway, this is what the impala looks like, and this is a picture of one, and he said, notice their rump. And I said, yeah, he said, do you see the M on their rump? And I said, yeah, I do see an M on their rump. And he said, uh, that stands for McDonald's. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, when you're hungry in America, you go to McDonald's, you get something to eat. He said, uh, when the lions are hungry in Africa, they go find an impala. <laughs> he said, these are the animals that the predators prey upon most often, and they're really fast, and that helps them to survive, but the lions, the cheetahs who are in packs, they'll, they'll attack the impala and they'll eat them. Uh, the crocodiles, if, a, if, an, if an impala is getting a drink at a watering hole and there's a crocodile hiding in there, they'll attack the impala and eat it. So these animals are you know, sort of the bottom of the food chain among the animals on four legs that are roaming around the, uh, the savanna in the African wilderness. And so anyway, I was thinking about that and I thought, oh, that explains a lot because we were sitting there and there were impala there and every little sound that you heard, they would get scared. They were the most skittish animals at the watering hole. Here's a little scene of them. And, uh, and as you take a look at this, you can see some of the animals that are there, but there's, there's impala who are constantly listening. Just watch. Oh, wait, what did I hear? What did I hear? Uh, oh, we better go. Now they're going to stop, and then they're going to come back. Well, you won't see them coming back, but they do finally come back to the watering hole. And this is what they do repeatedly. I mean, they're the most nervous animals you've ever seen. Now, the zebras are not far behind that, and the zebras know that they're slower than the impala, so they've got to get a head start on the impala because whoever's last is the one that's going to get eaten. So this is how it works. And I was thinking about that as I was watching them, and we sat there for like an hour, and I watched them just how skittish they were, constantly running, and I thought, they're a lot like us as human beings, that, that many of us live with a certain you know, kind of underlying fear that something's going to get us. And, and for us, it's not so much the animals, maybe it's other people. 
It's the other. And, and so there's this underlying fear. We're, we're in a heightened state of awareness and caution. And then when we hear a sound, when we see something happening, suddenly we're ready to run, right? And, and we learned that we have the same mechanism built into us that the, that the antelope have. There's the fight or flight mechanism, right? So either we're going to be willing to fight, we're going you know, to take up arms and we're ready to go, or we're going to run. But we got to protect ourselves because something bad is going to try to get us. Somebody bad is going to try to get us. And that's a little bit of what's going on in our hearts. Today we're going to talk about the fear of the other. And uh, as we continue in the series on, on living unafraid, living with courage and hope, we're going to talk about how we sometimes fear the other. And we have this system built into us, this fight or flight system meant to protect us, but sometimes our sensitivity is not quite accurate. Sometimes we don't really accurately discern a threat, and I will tell you 99.9% .9 of the things we're afraid of are things we don't need to be afraid of. There are things we need to be afraid of, but most of the stuff that we spend our times pondering, worrying about, afraid of, are things we never have to be afraid of. So sometimes the things that we learn to fear are things we learn culturally. They, learned, they, they were taught us, and we don't even know exactly where we got them, but they're burrowed deep down in our soul. Uh, they maybe were taught us by our parents or our grandparents or something we saw on the news or some scary movie we saw when we were children. And i give you an example for me. I grew up in Prairie Village at 68th and Mission Road, and as I was growing up, I uh, somewhere learned that a white kid from Prairie Village should never show up on the other side of Troost that if you went to the other side of truth, something bad was going to happen to you. I don't, nobody ever told me what the bad thing was that was going to happen, but I was certain I'd get beat up, or I'd get robbed, or I could get killed if a white Prairie Village kid showed up on the other side of truth. I'd never been to the other side of truth, didn't know what it looked like, didn't know who the people were. I did know they were African-American predominantly, and I was supposed to be afraid of them. You know, uh, six months ago, I was having lunch with Pastor Emmanuel Cleaver III, who pastors at St. James United Methodist Church. His father was the pastor there before him, Congressman Cleaver. And as we were having lunch together, we were talking about our experience of race. And I said, you know, I, I grew up in a home where, where nobody spoke racial slurs. We, uh, if you'd done that, you would have had your mouth washed out with soap. We were, you know, we didn't ever consciously, you know, I grew up with Martin Luther King as a hero of mine. But there was this fear that was baked into the whole thing. And I don't know where it came from. I don't remember my parents ever telling me this. It just was baked in. And it was deep. And he said, you know what's funny is, I grew up, he's just a couple years younger than I am. He said, I grew up on the Missouri side of the state line. And he said, I grew up believing that if I showed up in Johnson County, I could get beat up or arrested or something bad could happen to me. And I thought we both grew up with the same kind of fear of the other. And aren't really quite clear where it came from. And those are the kind of fears that we're talking about today, the, the impressions that we have that leave us afraid. And, you know, every generation has its own enemies or its own, you know, the, the people that it needs to be afraid of, right? And we, we come up with new people to be afraid of, and we add them to the long list of other people we need to be afraid of. And then sometimes we learn after, time, after a time we don't really need to be afraid of those people anymore. I was thinking about uh, at a funeral that I preached yesterday, there was a fellow who passed away, his daughter's a member of our church, and as I was doing the funeral, uh, she said, you know, my dad's favorite song was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. You know the song, right? And uh, it, it was voted the, the most important song in a film ever uh, by the recording industry or the movie industry, somebody. It was one of the top uh, 100 songs of the century, last century, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Judy Garland sings it, Wizard of Oz. And, uh, and so, I, you know, she wanted to sing it because her dad always told her, you know, if, if I'm ever away from you, just know I'll see you somewhere over the rainbow. So we had it sung at the service, Corey sang it at the service, and, and, but I always, whenever there's a song like that, I always go back and research the song to figure out, okay, what's, what more can I learn about that, and how does that tie in maybe with the, with the homily that I'm going to give, and, and here's what I learned, maybe you know this, uh, Yip Harburg was the composer of the song, he wrote the lyrics, he wrote the lyrics to all the songs in The Wizard of Oz, 
He was Jewish. It was 1939. Uh, Hitler was beginning his pogroms against the Jews in Germany, uh, and the Nazis were beginning to take over uh, Europe. They were beginning to stretch their boundaries and take over small areas around their country. And the country was coming out of the Great Depression, and so the song really gave some sense of hope in the midst of some scary things that were going on. And then I learned that Yip Harburg, uh, Jewish, was a member of the Democratic uh, Socialist Party in America. He wasn't communist, but he was a member of the Democratic Socialist Party. In the 1940s, Americans were afraid of communists and socialists, really afraid, and had a hard time differentiating between those two groups. And so in 1950, Yip Harburg, who wrote some of the most loved songs of the 1940s, was hauled before Congress and was blacklisted and was told that he could no longer write songs for movie, movies, for television, or for the radio. And his passport was revoked so he couldn't leave the country. Now, I find this interesting. 60 years later, a man who described himself as a democratic socialist won 23 states in the democratic primary. His name was Bernie Sanders. And and to look back and see how terrified we were of a certain group of people so that we take away their rights to make a living because of our fear. Here's the thing, that when we live with this underlying fear of other people, our actions are almost never admirable in what we do in response to our fear. They almost always lead us to do the wrong thing. And we feel fully justified in the moment, as people did for 12 years, requiring, mandating that Yip Harburg couldn't write any songs for radio, television, or movies. Now, I think about, you know, one, as we're moving into the presidential inauguration this week, I think about one of the great inaugural addresses in the history of our country. There's two or three that really stand out, but one of them was in 1933 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, first took office. And it was a time when the uh, country was in a Great Depression, 25% unemployment in 1933, 25%. And, uh, and of course, uh, it just, you know, it was a very uh, terrifying time for many people. And what people began to realize in leadership was people are afraid, and that is perpetuating the Great Depression. It's actually making things worse. We have to calm people down. And so he gave that famous line, you remember it, in the, second, or the first inaugural address. Here it is. Take a listen. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Right, you remember that line. And first of all, let me just ask, is that true? No, it's not true. I mean, there are things to fear, right? Somebody comes to your house with a gun, you should be afraid. If there's a lion in your backyard trying to get in your house, you might ought to be a little nervous about that. Of course there are some things to fear besides fear itself. The thing is that 99.99% of the things that we fear are really fear itself, right? There's a, an appropriate time to be afraid. The problem is that our sensitivity to the fear or the threats around us is so heightened the imagination takes over, and now we're bombarded with messages constantly in the news, 24-hour news cycles of things that are happening. By the way, you know, what makes the news, the reason why something makes the news is because it's unusual, right? Like if it's something that happens every day, like nobody reports on, you know, who got a ticket for driving 65 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Nobody talks about that because everybody does that, right? We report on the news things that are odd and unusual, but what we have a hard time doing is differentiating. You know, we see this thing on the news, and now suddenly it sounds like something we should be afraid of because somebody did this thing in some place somewhere, and we don't put that into some kind of perspective to say, well, yeah, but is that happening everywhere? No, it happened one time. That's why it made the news. And then if you pick up in a world of six and a half billion people, you pick up a story over here and another one over here and another one over here, and that's what you see. Suddenly they're everywhere. 
we have to be really scared because this stuff is happening all the time. I mean, it happened yesterday in Germany, and it happened, you know, a week ago somewhere else, and it happened here. We should be terrified because, you know, this stuff is happening, right? So, so that kind of fear of the other, you know, when it came to FDR, he, had, he made this wonderful statement, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. 1941, Pearl Harbor happens. He's still president, of course. 1941, Pearl Harbor happens. And in the beginning of 1942, President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, issues an executive order. The man who said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, issues an executive order demanding or commanding that all Japanese Americans, people of Japanese descent who are American citizens, needed to be forcibly relocated from places around military zones, and he declared the entire West Coast a military zone. 81% of Japanese Americans lived on the West Coast. 100 to 130,000 people relocated to internment camps and other places because we were afraid they were going to be spies. And it was all understandable, all made sense, but somebody needed to be able to say, wait a minute, is that really an accurate statement? Is this really right? Is this what we want to do to people? Right? And we look back and say that wasn't one of the better chapters in our history as Americans. What motivated it? It was fear. And the man who said we have nothing to fear, fear itself was listening to the fear of the country and felt like he had to do something that had a significant impact on the Japanese Americans in our country. I'll give you uh, just a couple more brief examples, and I want to move on. So uh, 1890, in 1890, Louisiana state legislature passed a law that said that blacks couldn't ride in the same train cars with whites. Why was that exactly? Well, they were afraid of something. What were they afraid of? I don't know. It's hard to even make sense of this. So blacks had to ride in a separate train car. And so uh, the legislature passed this, and uh, the trains weren't excited about this because that meant they had to buy more railroad cars. And of course, anybody who was concerned about civil rights was not in favor of it. And there was one particular man who was going to work against this. His name was Homer Plessy. Uh, Homer Plessy was a, uh, he was a civil rights advocate. Uh, he was a man who was seven-eighths white. He was one-eighth black, which made him a black man in the eyes of, Louis of the Louisiana legislature. This is a picture of Homer Plessy. So he decided somebody's got to challenge this and do something about it. And what he did is he decided, he worked with some other folks, and he said, I'm going to buy a first-class ticket on the white train. Now, they won't know that I'm not white because I don't look like I'm not white, but the legislature, legislature defines me as black because I'm one-eighth black. So I'm going to buy a ticket on the first-class train, and then I need to let them know that I'm black so that they, by definition, uh, I'm African or black, as it was said then, and, uh, and I want them to arrest me because I want to take this to court. And so they informed the railroad, uh, he bought the ticket, he got on the train in, in New Orleans, they arrested him, and uh, the case went to court. It went all the way up to the Louisiana Supreme Court in 1892. Uh, this, actually, he was arrested in 1892, I'm not sure when it happened, that it went to the Louisiana Supreme Court. Uh, when that happened, the Louisiana Supreme Court said, no, it is perfectly appropriate for us to have separate but equal facilities for blacks and whites. So then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Homer Plessy was certain that this would get knocked. In fact, everybody who was working with him was certain it would get knocked down by the U.S. Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court in 1896 voted seven to one that separate but equal was appropriate. Why did they do that? What was the motivation underneath it? And so that led to 60 years of separate but equal in America. This is what it looked like in North Carolina in 1950. Of course, that doesn't look very equal either. And, and I, I look at these pictures, I go, well, so what was that about, really? What was somebody afraid of that I couldn't drink after somebody of, the, uh, of another race? 
And it really wasn't about blacks being afraid to drink after whites, it was about whites being afraid to drink after blacks. What was that about? And you know, in our moments of fear, the things that we choose to do are never the most admirable, Christ-like. So what are we afraid of today? Well, of course, race continues to be a huge issue for us as a country. It's the most enduring issue of fear in our country. But it goes beyond that. Of course, now we're afraid of Muslims. Uh, We have to be afraid of them because we know what some of them have done. And while there's a billion and a half Muslims in the world, we know of those who've done something that makes us afraid. Now there's a mosque being built here and another one being built there, and are they trying to take over our country and what's happening? A little bit like people felt about the Catholics back in the 1800s when so many Irish came to America. There's a fear about that. And, uh, and then, of course, maybe we're a little afraid of gay and lesbian people, and it seems like they're trying to take over and you know, they're pushing their thoughts on us, and so I hear this sort of talk from time to time. So the day after the election, Maddie Davis was in our congregation last night. She's a member of our church. She's in school at the J School, journalism school at MU, and she said the day after the election, she saw, she's a photojournalist, she saw this man uh, in the middle of campus at MU, and he was crying. This is a picture of him. His name was Hussein, and I don't know if you can make out Uh, what this says. He says, am I what you fear? And he's standing there crying in the middle of the campus at MU the day after the election. And she said, you know, I watched as my fellow students went up and put their arms around him and just hugged him and held him. So if you find yourself struggling with fear of the other, then what do we do? And and I want to mention to you just two tools, one from the therapeutic community, one from our spiritual resources. So the therapeutic community talks about something called cognitive restructuring. Cognitive restructuring. This is something I want you to be able to, you might even write this down. It's a very simple tool, and I want to encourage you, if you struggle with a serious level of fear in your life, go see a counselor. Go see a therapist who can help you, because they can coach you using these tools, and they can really show you. I'm going to just tell you about it in five minutes. They can actually walk you through this. So they'll they'll take eight weeks and say, let's walk through this. Let's figure out how we can work with and deal with the fears that you're wrestling with. And sometimes you need to see a doctor, and, and medication can help. But I want to give you at least some of, you know, an awareness of some of these tools. So cognitive restructuring is a fancy term for what we would call correcting stinking thinking, all right? So stinking thinking is these are automatic responses that you have, and you don't know where it came from, but you have this idea in your head that was planted there maybe when you were a kid, and the thought process is wrong. And sometimes this is based on either-or thinking, you know, both-and, black-and-white thinking, you know, not both-and, either-or or black-and-white thinking where suddenly you're either good or you're bad, and, you know, of course, most of us are somewhere between those two things, and, and, and it's not, it, it, it takes away the capacity to really think carefully about complex issues, and, but as we begin to have this kind of thinking take over and the tape begins to play, we see somebody and we become afraid because there's something playing in our mind, and what you need to do is correct the tape. Like, you might need better facts because you don't have the facts. And so it's getting the right facts helps you begin to correct the thinking, and then you've got to figure out a strategy for reminding yourself of this. Every time you have an instantaneous impulse when you see somebody and you start to be afraid, you go, okay, wait a minute, I need to remember this thought that I have, this process. And that's what the counselor will help you do when you retrain your thinking. This is cognitive restructuring. Now, I'll give you just an example of this. So most Americans believe that violent crime is on the rise in America. And, uh, and because violent crime is on the rise and there are increasing threats to us as American citizens, you know, we need to find something to make us feel safe. And for many people, that's been guns. Now, I'm not knocking guns today. I'll tell you, when I, we lived in a rough part of town when I was in college, and I had a baseball bat next to my bed. What was I going to do with that baseball bat if somebody came in to get me? But nobody came in to get me, but at least it made me feel better. I slept better. I had a baseball bat next to my bed. I understand some people have guns because it makes them feel safer. 
But here's the thing, part of this has to do with figuring out, you know, how threatened am I really? And if I think things are getting worse, then things are getting really scary, and I gotta, I gotta have something, you know? And, and what we found in the last eight years, so the gun industry and the ammunition industry grew by, by 158% in the last eight years. And, and I don't think that's a whole lot of people said, hey, I wanna take up hunting now. There's a whole lot of people who said, I'm a little scared right now. And so in, uh, in 2008, $19 billion was what was expended annually on uh, gun sales. Last year, it was $58 billion. So a huge, you know, something's happened there. So then part of what you, what you do in the midst of this is you say, well, okay, is it really true that violent crime is on the increase? So just in case you don't know this, this is the FBI statistics for violent crime since 1990. So most people are surprised by this. 1991 was the highest rate of violent crime, and since then you can see it's declined by more than half in this period of time. And last 2015 was down a little lower still. 2016 was up slightly from 2015. Now when I see that, if I've been afraid and I'm really afraid, and, I, and the thing is I see the news stories about violent crime happening all over the place, and I didn't have that access to information before, but, but if I know this information, it begins to help me go, I don't really have to be that afraid. In fact, I am safer today than I've been in the last 20 years in America. And, and so that begins to be something, you know, that piece of information begins to help me. The other thing that's interesting is the Justice Department reports that the most likely victim of a violent crime is not a 70-year-old who lives in the suburbs. The most likely victim of a violent crime is a poor black man who lives in the midst of poverty. Those are the people who are getting uh, violated regularly uh, in terms of violent crime. But we feel like if we live in the suburbs, we've got to be really afraid, and yet most of the violent crime is not happening in the places where we live. Now, another statistic I find interesting is uh, the murder rate. So 10,000 murders happened in 2015 in the United States, and that again makes us afraid. And, and then you start doing a little research and you go, uh, this is a statistic I found amazing. 440,000 people died in 2015 because of medical mistakes at the hospital by nurses, doctors, or pharmacists you're 44 times more likely to die as a result of a mistake at the hospital than you are somebody pulling a gun on you and killing you. But we don't really think about that. I mean, you know, it's just sort of, so when you begin to put this in perspective, you go, okay, this helps me. And again, this isn't for or against guns. It's just a matter of, let's just be clear about what the threat level is as we're trying to think about how do I respond to the threat level. Now, one of the problems today is fake news, right? And fake news is not new. Uh, actually, since the internet came along and email, it's just gotten worse, right? So fake news for the last eight years, I would have people forward me emails, and typically they were things, uh, you know, so Democrats forward these kind of emails when a Republican is president, and, a, and Republicans forward them to me when a Democrat is president. And so uh, these were emails like President Obama issues an executive order that, you know, uh, uh, federal employees can't say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore because it says God in it. I'm like, somebody, one of our members caught me after church one Sunday to say this. I said, can I just, I'll just promise you that's not the case. But let's do, let's do some research. You go home and I'll go home and we'll research this together. And then we'll figure, well, but it was on the internet. So, you know, we went and researched it and we found out, of course, that was ridiculous and that did not happen. But there's a whole lot of those kinds of things that happened. So most recently, or at least the one that really stands out to me, was uh, when an internet bit of fake news began to be spread that Hillary Clinton and some other folks uh, we're running a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And we laugh about that. But, uh, but you know, there was a fellow in North Carolina who had two children and a wife, Edgar Madison Welch, 28 years old. 
And the more he read it and the more places he read it, because he didn't just take it from one source, he found it on three or four sources, and he began to believe, you know what, this must be happening. And because he cared about children, he showed up with guns at the uh, Comet Ping Pong Pizza Parlor in Washington, D.C., and when he walked in, he began shooting at the ceiling and said, I've come here to liberate the children. Because he had begun to believe the fake news and allowed it to stir up in his heart, and he took the response of, I'm going to go liberate kids. Right? He had the right response to a fear that didn't exist. All right. So, whom shall I fear? That's the question I want to ask. You know, carefully evaluating the threats that are out there against us, that's something we need to be able to do. Really understanding, asking and challenging, stinking thinking, holding information we get with skepticism when it's critical of somebody else or when it, you know, lays out a threat that we should be afraid of. But I love the spiritual response to this. Now, King David lives in a time where people are constantly threatening the kingdom, and, uh, and he's surrounded by his enemies. And we learned last week that what King David does when he's afraid is he writes songs to God, and then he sings them. So Psalm 27 is one of those. I want us to read it together. Let's put it up on the screen. <clears throat> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, a stronghold is like a fortress. And he says, God is my stronghold. God is my fortress. God is my deliverer. I love that, that Martin Luther King, or Martin Luther song, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And he says, you know, in his mind, this is what the psalmist is saying, I know I've got these enemies out there, and they could kill me, but I also know that God is walking by my side. And if God is by my side, how can I be afraid? He will either deliver me, or he will somehow rescue me, or he will save me, or we as Christians know we might be saved in the, ever, you know, in, in the everlasting. We are people who know that death has been conquered and we don't have to be afraid, which is why Paul says, who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, nothing on earth can separate us from the love of God. God is walking with us all the time and we don't have to be afraid. But I have to let that sink down into my heart because I can read it with my eyes and I can hear it in my head, but I need to get it down here somewhere. And that requires a little technique, I think, when you're reading Scripture. So last week we talked about the importance of singing songs to God. This week I want to talk about reading Scripture and using a tool called Lectio Divina. Electio Divina is, uh, it basically just means divine, divine reading. And as you're reading, here's what you do. Uh, would you put that scripture back up from Psalm 27? Put it back up on the screen for me. There we go. So here's what you do. Uh, this is what I do anyway. Electio Divina starts with, uh, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's a short little prayer. And then you read the scripture. And I read the scripture, and maybe I get something out of it. Maybe I don't get something out of it. And so then I do it again. Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Now I read the scripture out loud, and I read it slowly and very intentionally. And then when I'm finished doing that, there's usually two or three things that begin to speak to me in that passage. Then, then I want to ponder those for a little while. I'm going to think about those two or three. Maybe it's just a word or just a phrase, and so I begin to ponder those. Then I come back again, speak, Lord, your servant's listening, and I listen and I read in silence and I underline the parts that begin to speak to me. And then I turn it into a prayer, as I talked about last week. And so then I'm going to say, Lord, you are my light and my salvation. How can I be afraid? Please help me not be afraid. Help me to remember that you are my stronghold, that you are my light. Help me to wait on you, O Lord. Help me to remember that you are by my side. Be my mighty fortress in Jesus' name. And that whole thing might take 10 minutes, but somehow that scripture has moved from your head to your heart and you find your heart being still and you're no longer afraid. Now let me just give you a couple of the strategies from scripture for not being afraid. One of those is what Jesus teaches us. This is his defining strategy. He says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. He doesn't mean have warm, fuzzy feelings for them. 
It means bless them. To bless them, you have to get to know them. You have to spend time with them. You have to connect with them. So bless your enemy. Now, the truth is most of the people that we're afraid of are not our enemies, right? So, so that, then this turns into bless your neighbor, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But to love my neighbor, I've got to get to know my neighbor, even though they wear strange things on their head or they speak a different language or they're a different religion. I've got to get to know them. Right? And my neighbor isn't just the people who live in my little community. They're also the people who live on the other side of Troost or in North Kansas City or in you know, some other… I've got to get to know people. I've got to step outside of my comfort zone to connect with people. And as I begin to love them, as I begin to bless them, I find it's really hard to be afraid of them. And that's exactly what John says when he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. When I became a Christian, I began to feel like I needed to step outside my comfort zone. I began to go places where I was told I was supposed to be afraid. And as I get to know people who lived in those places, I realized that I had bought a lie. These were people I didn't have to be afraid of. I began to become friends. I began to connect with. I began to worship with. I began to develop relationships with people who were different from myself. As I sought to bless them, they sought to bless me, and suddenly I found I was no longer afraid. That started in Kansas City, and then it moved to other parts of the world. So I remember, as I was a kid growing up, maybe you remember this, this only in early elementary school, it stopped by the time I was like in third grade, is we would have these drills once in a while where you would get underneath your desk and you would put your heads like this. Anybody remember those? Yeah. And, and what were we doing? We were practicing in the event that the communists dropped a bomb on us. Really? That's going to help you. If you do this, I don't know, I'm just saying, I don't think that's probably a good strategy for saving you, but maybe. But see, I was taught that I had to be afraid of Russians. So as soon as the Iron Curtain dropped and we just started Church of the Resurrection, I took a mission trip to Russia. And I remember one night in Moscow, you know, and it was the Red Square was lit up, and here I am walking with Russians, some of whom spoke English, and were walking around telling our stories, and they were telling me how terrified they were of Americans when they were growing up, and how they would get underneath their desk like this in case the Americans dropped a bomb on them. And, and I thought, we're not very different, you know, and we celebrated together, and we ate together, and we broke bread, and suddenly they were my friends, and I was no longer afraid. And then it was Israel, and you know, how many of you have been to Israel? number of you have. And did your friends not say, are you sure it's safe to go to Israel? Of course they said that. Did any of you feel unsafe when you went to Israel? No, but you, you, know, you, you were before you got there, and then suddenly you're meeting people. Then for me, it was not just Israel, then it was the Palestinians. And so it was spending time in Palestinian refugee camps and connecting with Palestinians and, and having lunch you know, in the homes of Palestinian leaders. And, and all of a sudden, I'm finding these are just people. And then it was going to Africa and, and having a chance to be in you know, Southern Africa, South Africa, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Right, and all of a sudden, I find I'm not afraid anymore. And then I, I remember we were in northern Africa this last year. We were in Cairo, Egypt, you know, Muslim Brotherhood. I should be afraid. And all of these other people who were over there, I should be afraid. And I took my 29-year-old daughter with me. And we had a, a film crew, two people. And one night, we were going to go for dinner in the heart of old Cairo in the midst of a celebration with 300,000 Muslims who'd come in from across the country to celebrate. And we were the only people who looked like us. And it was jam-packed with people. I mean, crowded, crowded, crowded. And my daughter looked at me, and I looked at her, and she said, Dad, like, you sure it's safe? I'm like, no, I don't. I have no idea. You know, these guides are leading us, and I think they don't want us to die because it's going to ruin their business in the future, so I'm trusting that they know what they're doing, and I think we're going to be okay. You know, let's just, let's just count on that. Here's the thing. We're people who, don't, who are not afraid of death, right? And so, you know, we go in and, and we have this wonderful evening meal and we're sitting outside listening to music and we're walking around the town and we sit out and have coffee until, until midnight in downtown, you know, old town Cairo with 300,000 Muslims celebrating a special Muslim festival and suddenly I wasn't afraid. Here's what I want you to remember. The Bible says this, 
that Jesus, uh, the Old Testament refers to one who would come who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The New Testament says that Jesus is that lion. I love this portrayal of Jesus, big lion in our stained glass window, right? You maybe read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Jesus was a lion and he's not a tame lion, right? This giant lion who walks with you wherever you go, who is your protector and your preserver and your strength and your rescuer, and you trust him. And every morning you wake up and say, Lord, walk with me. Help me not to be afraid. I, I was thinking, this is how I wanted to end the sermon. I thought, boy, wouldn't it be cool if you could find a picture of a lion who had adopted a, uh, an impala? You know, and sometimes you find that with animals, like they adopt, you know, an animal that's an unlikely friend. And I thought, that would be so cool if I could find it. But you know what? I searched the whole entire internet. I could not find a lion that adopted an impala. But I did find a cheetah that adopted an impala. This is a picture of it right here. And you know, if you could see the rest of the picture, on the left, there are all these other cheetahs who I know wanted to eat this impala. But this cheetah was not going to let those other cheetahs eat the impala because somehow this cheetah saw this impala as his friend, companion, child. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And wherever you go, he is there. He is your companion, your strength, your, your stronghold, your light. Of whom should you be afraid? Let's pray. Lord, you know that we are by nature skittish like those impala and the zebras around the watering hole. And those that we don't understand, those who are different from ourselves, we find it easy to fear. Even those whose views are very different from ours, who see the world differently, how easy it is for us to fear, to to feel threatened by, to speak ill of, to find ways to try to tear down. How easily we give in to this, O Lord. Help us not to give in to fear. Help us not to give in to hate. Help us, O Lord, as your people, to be people who love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And may that love so permeate us that perfect love casts out all fear. And help us, O Lord, every day to remember that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you walk with us and we need not be afraid. Use us as a church to tear down walls and barriers in our city to build bridges, to be people of courage, and people who help create a city that looks more like your kingdom. In Jesus' name, 